Well, my name, uh, my name is Andrew, like David said, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. Mainly, I'm with the Friday night community. How many Friday nighters do we have here tonight, this morning? Good. That's great. Friday is such a great community, but I teach all over the place. It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you guys. Um, just by show of hands, how many married folks do we have here this morning? Lift your hands up real high and give yourselves a shout. Congratulations, you're married. How many single people do we have here this morning? Ready to lift it up with a shout. There it is. All right, then. Good. Y'all are in this series called uh, You Singular, (laughs) Me Singular, Us, right? Plural, a thing on relationships. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to try to take the widest possible angle that I can take to talk about relationships in the church according to God's dream and God's design. So what I'm really trying to do this morning is I'm trying to take you married people, again, shout at me. Where are you married people? And you single people, shout at me. And I'm trying to put you all together here and help you understand what your obligations to one another are. Sound good? Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, we welcome your presence here, and we thank you that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, Jesus, you said that you would be there in the midst of them, and that you conferred upon us, this is what you said to your disciples, the keys to the kingdom in that, to bind and to loose. So you're here in a profound way, and you're validating the words that we say as we lift them up and we see them chastened and tempered by your words. So Um, We're just asking this morning, Lord Jesus, that you'd be our present teacher, our rabbi, our shepherd, to help us and to instruct us and to wake us up to all of the good things that your Father has for us. Um, Help us this morning know ourselves to be a family brought together by the Holy Spirit of God, empowered and equipped and given whatever our station in life, given all the fullness of the Godhead inside of us. Help us know that. We're looking to you this morning. We're saying, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open them to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Full house this morning. Man, it's so nice to see everybody. Romans chapter 12. I want to talk to you a little bit about the church as the family of God, God's big, giant family, where all of the deep relationships and good relationships of our lives take place. If you have Bibles and you're there, holler at me by saying I'm there. Good. And we've got it up on the screen anyway. Listen to Paul's words here. He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body, everybody say one body. That was so lame. Can you do it better than that? One body. There it is. Everybody say one body. One body. Oh, man. And I feel a sense of personal failure as a preacher if I can't get you to do better than that, but that's okay. I'll live with it. One body with many members. Say many members. 
So one body, many members, and these members don't all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member, say it with me, belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the each member of the body of Christ belongs to all the others. It's a really profound thing that Paul is saying here. That the church is not just a community of people who have gathered because they share a passion for something. Okay? It's not like going to a Broncos game. All right, there's 70,000 people there and we're all hooting and hollering and we feel a sense of connection to one another and when the Broncos score a touchdown, you high-five the guy next to you even though he's a perfect stranger. But really, your connection to one another is sort of out there. Paul goes, no, 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 no. In the church, it's way deeper than that. Our sense of connection to one another is way deeper than that. He says that, that each of us belongs to one another. Verse six, he says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So... There's grace that is encoded in some way into each one of you. Different gifts according to the grace. And if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. And if it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Step back for a minute and think about what Paul is saying. That there is this new community that has been created by the power of the Holy Spirit, where the bonds that the members of the body have to one another are so strong that it's not just a sort of mutual association. Again, like, uh, you know, uh, being passionate about a sports team or belonging to your favorite club or having friends on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapface or whatever the newest thing is, okay? Yeah, I know it's called Snapchat. It's an old guy joke. But it's a deeper bond than that. And Paul describes the bond as each of you belongs to one another. Now, here's the thing. The early church believed that in baptism, a person stepped out of a whole constellation of associations that had been, up to that point in time in their lives, primary to them, and had now jumped into a new community in which the associations, the relationships in that family became primary. The church became the new primary web of associations for people in the early church. Now, we in the modern church don't think of the church that way. The church still, for many people in modern times, is more like the Broncos or more like some club that we're a part of. But in the early church, it wasn't that way at all. To be, uh, to be put down in the waters of baptism and brought up again as a new creation was not just to begin a relationship with Jesus, but it was to begin a relationship with the family of God that began to redefine the whole way that we understood each other. Listen to this. This is actually reflected in the teaching of Jesus. At one point, Jesus, this is early on in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' ministry is getting underway, and there are thousands of people that are crowding around him at all times to listen to his teaching. And at one point, early on, this is again Mark chapter 3, his mother and his brothers, so his family comes, Mark records this, to take charge of him. Because they said to themselves, he's out of his mind to be acting like this. And so in the middle of all of this teaching, some people come to Jesus and they say this. We can put the scripture up on the screen. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. In other words, uh, Jesus, your mama's in town. 
All right? When your mama comes in town, stop everything, right? Go talk to the woman. She brought you into the world. In verse 33, he says, who are, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now you have got to appreciate how profound a thing this is for Jesus to do. Jesus is a Jewish person. And in Judaism, the family is the primary thing. What tribe are you from? What clan are you from, right? It's your whole understanding of yourself. And Jesus goes, yeah, remember that whole thing where the family was like your primary web of association? He goes, now I've got a new thing. And it's whoever is gathered around me seeking to do God's will, that is my brother and my sister and mother. So I would say it this way. You can put the next slide up. That what Jesus does is that he relativized the biological family to the family of God. Jesus relativized the biological family to the family of God. He didn't destroy the biological family. People still going to get married and have kids and all that stuff. But what he did is he took the biological family and he set it in the big, wide work of God to create one giant global family for himself. Are you tracking with me this morning? Guys, you're challenging again my self-understanding here as a pretty good preacher. Thank you. You're tracking with me this morning. This had, now I do have a point here coming very soon. This had at least two consequences for people that belong to the early church. Number one, next slide up. One result is that marriage and family were no longer seen as existentially crucial. In other words, that repositioning that Jesus did with the biological family, one impact of it is that people in the early church no longer saw getting married and having kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and getting everybody together every year in your house for Christmas and telling stories and all of that. People in the early church didn't think about that anymore. That, it changed for them. They didn't see that as the necessary fulfillment of their end as a human being. It was something that could be done but it was not necessary. Everybody say necessary. So marriage and family were no longer seen as existentially crucial, but then here, this other result, and this is huge, look at this one, next result, is that the church became the place where the deepest kinds of intimacy and belonging were experienced. So if the family is no longer seen as existentially crucial, then what is? And Jesus' singular answer to that question would be the family of God, of course is the existentially crucial thing. This is the place where the deepest kinds of intimacy are experienced. This is the place, my family, Jesus would say, is the place where the deepest kinds of belonging are experienced. And when you come into my family, when you come into this thing that my father is creating by the power of his Holy Spirit, then you begin to find the deep needs of the human heart, the human soul, satisfied. And it doesn't need to happen in that other place. Are we on the same page this morning? Okay, now the reason that I am saying all of this is because there is a temptation that we have, a habit of mind that we all have to look at marriage and family as some destination that we all must aspire to, or to freight marriage and family with expectations that it cannot possibly bear 
the feeling that kind of happens in our hearts is that it sort of gets positioned like this. Um, one day when, and we fill in that when with an image of a wife or a husband and a home and little children and all of that. One day when, picture, then I will. And the other picture is soul satisfaction. Oh, then I will be happy. And I'm saying to you this morning that the entire trend of the New Testament speaks against that. It goes, demythologize all of that. That's not the way that it works. Now, I'm saying this to you as a happily married man of 18 years with four children. I want to show you a picture of my family here. Look at that. Aren't they nice? So that's me over there with the beard. And then uh, my wife, Mandy, my oldest son, Ethan, is 11. And uh, my next son, Gabe, is 10. This is Isabella. She's eight. And she's perfect, so her brothers tell me otherwise. And then in the middle there next to Mandy is uh, Liam, my five-year-old. And I love my family. I think marriage and family are amazing. Uh, Mandy and I have a wonderful time together. We love dreaming about the future together. I love, I love home. I love having somebody to go home to and somebody to share life with. I love those little critters. They drive me crazy sometimes, but I freaking love them. They make us laugh. They make us cry. They inspire me. They teach me things about God. But one thing that I have learned being in this family now for almost 18 years, it'll be 18 years this coming August, um, one of the things that I've learned is that this family and that woman in particular, Mandy, cannot bear the full weight of all of my deep-seated emotional and psychological and needs, needs for connection. She can't do it. They can't do it. And if I do that to them, if I raise them up on that pedestal where I expect them to satisfy me in that way, then what I have effectively done is I have effectively made an idol out of them. And they cannot possibly bear the weight of those expectations. Mandy and I um, started dating when I was 16. I was, yeah, I was about, you know, I was exactly 16. And uh, she's a little bit older than me, so she was closer to 18, I think. So she's about a year and a half. So we've known each other, and I'm 36 now. So Mandy and I have known each other for 20 years. And uh, we uh, both grew up as nice little Christian kids. And uh, actually, neither of us dated anybody else. So it was our first, you know, this year, like, you're my first crush, right? So, and, that, and then we dated for a couple years, and our friends were around us, and our families were around us, and they were so affirming of our relationship. And so they told us that it would be a good thing for us to get married. And so I was 19, and she was 20, and we hitched our carts together. And we lived happily. No, we didn't live happily ever after at all. In fact, by the time, and I just had this expectation that like as good kids who have grown up in the church and we have a Jesus honoring relationship, you know, that it's just going to be all raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and it's just going to be bliss. And by the time we got to our first Christmas, I honestly thought, and this is like six months into it, we got married in August of 2000, so like five or six months into it, I thought to myself, oh, we're going to die. We are, we are definitely not going to make it. And then what, like, people will just think that I'm an idiot. 
I was a good Christian kid and blah, 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 and then I couldn't, I couldn't make a marriage last for more than a year. What's the matter with you, man? And we were, I mean, we were in like full out panic mode for months and months and months. And do you know what saved us? It was realizing that, uh, wait a minute, like you can't meet all of my needs. And so we started reaching outside of ourselves and rediscovering the beauty of belonging to the family of faith. And I found myself leaning on brothers in the faith and going, have you experienced this too? And they go, oh yeah, we're miserable as well. We're making it work, you know? (laughs) And Mandy would do the same thing. She'd be like, have you experienced this? But the man that you're married to. And they go, oh yeah, our guy's crazy too. It's, it's going to be okay. And it's just like it was something about belonging to that broader network, the family of God. We found that our deep relationship needs and connection needs, all of those needs, were satisfied in a constellation of relationships outside the marriage. And it was because those needs were satisfied outside the marriage that we could live true to the commitments that we had made to one another. And when the sense of deep intimacy and connection that Mandy had with one another, when that started to be restored, it was like icing on the cake. It was like, oh, look what God did. But it couldn't have happened if we were just relying on that thing to make it happen. Does that make sense to you? I'm saying that to you because one of the things that I sometimes see, both with married people in the church and with single people in the church, is that there is this expectation that, like I said earlier, one day when... I am in that exclusive relationship and all the things that accrue to that, then I will be relationally satisfied and whole and happy. And that does at least two really bad things. One, it sets you up for failure if and when you do get married. Okay, marriage is not one unending experience of unmitigated bliss. Mostly, it's trying to figure out how, how do I continue to love and serve this person who grows stranger to me every single day. And those of you that have been married for any length of time can attest to this. You learn more and more about each other, but you also, as you get older, you change so much. And so you're constantly sort of having to adapt. And, you know, Mandy and I had this laugh laugh last night watching television, and there was this report that this famous celebrity is ending their marriage after eight years of being married. And, of course, the reason cited for ending a marriage is always what? You know it? Say it real loud. Irreconcilable differences. And we laughed. We looked at each other and went, you know what marriage actually really is? It's learning how to be faithful to this person with whom you do have irreconcilable differences. (laughs) And appreciating that the goal is not reconciling them. The goal is going, okay, what do you need from me today? Okay, so when we have that expectation that this zone that we get into is going to satisfy all of our deepest relational needs, we set ourselves up for failure in marriage. But the other thing that we also do is we set up singleness to be one constant experience of feeling as though we're less or that we're on the outside of some experience looking in and that therefore we can't have an experience of fullness or flourishing or connection. Both of those things, guys, are bad. And they happen because we've idolized something that we had no business idolizing if we'd been paying attention to the words of Jesus. Are you with me this morning? Listen to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus and some 
of his questioners are having this conversation, some Pharisees came to test him. Look at Jesus' view of this. He says, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, including irreconcilable differences? And haven't you read, don't you love this about Jesus, what he has religious teachers asking questions? He's like, oh, have you ever read the Bible? (laughs) I like Jesus. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Next verse. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give a wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So why did, he, why did Moses tell men that they should divorce their wives for irreconcilable differences and even for burning the toast in the morning, right? And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, Moses, look at how he switches this. He goes, Moses didn't command this. He goes, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another woman, commits adultery. So he's going, this bond that God creates between men and women is so strong that the only thing that can dissolve it is adultery. That's the only thing that breaks the bond. A piece of paper does not create the bond, and the piece of paper cannot dissolve the bond. So he's lifting the vocation of marriage up to this incredibly exalted plane. So then look at what his disciples say to him. They go, uh, okay, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's probably better not to marry, right? I have a feeling when I read this, that the disciples are expecting Jesus to like mitigate what he's saying, okay? Oh, no, 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 guys. Oh, right, right, right. I get it, I get it. Sometimes I kind of run my mouth, and when I get excited as a preacher, I tend to speak in hyperbole, and it's really not so bad as that. So they ask him, right? If this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, guys, no, sorry. I know I crossed the line. He goes, yeah, no, you're right. Everybody shouldn't get married. Not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. Eunuchs are people who are physically maimed in some way so that it making marriage impossible. There are eunuchs who were born that way, and others are eunuchs who have been made that way by other people. And there are some who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this word, in other words, if you can accept the word about marriage, if you can appreciate the high vocation that it is, and if you believe you can remain faithful to that, and if the circumstances in the situation presents itself, and all other things being equal, it seems like the right thing to enter into the vocation of marriage, then go ahead and enter into the vocation of marriage. We need you to do that. But if, for whatever reason, that's not on the table for you, either because of physical reasons or because of commitments that you've made or because of a sense of calling that you have or for whatever reason, if that's not on the table, he goes, then don't worry about it. You're really okay. The one who can accept this word should accept it. The apostle Paul, just to take it a step further, he actually goes beyond the teaching of Jesus in some ways or at least explores some elements of the teaching of Jesus. When asked about marriage and family in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know what Paul says? He goes, yeah, so now about marriage and family, he goes, you know, here's what I'd really like if I could have it my way. Remember, Paul is single. Paul goes, I'd really like it if everybody would remain single. 
He goes, but if you have to, if you absolutely have to, yeah, that's fine. You can go ahead and get married. I'm just trying to tell you, though, that if you do that, you're going to have to pay bills and have nights up, you know, where you're, where you're figuring out your irreconcilable differences, and you're going to have to change poopy diapers probably at some point and figure out what you're going to name your dumb dog, you know, and you're going to have lots of troubles in this life. And he actually says this. He goes, I want to spare you these troubles. The time, he says, is short. The eschatological crisis is upon us. So the best thing for you to do will be to remain single so that you can give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. But if you have to and you need to or whatever reason, if it's there, you can get married. And, and he actually says, he's so strong in what he's saying that he goes, I'm just telling you, if you do get married, you're not sinning. Okay? It's an okay thing to do. Like he has to correct himself in that way. And isn't that the reverse of how we think about it in the modern church? One of the things that we do in the modern church is that we look, again, we look at singleness as like this malady that has to be cured or something. So you go, oh, you know what we need to do? We need to create a singles ministry to just help them. (laughs) You know what Paul would do? Paul would look at this mass of singles in this room this morning, and he'd go, oh, that's balling. And he'd go, oh, there's married people here too. You know what we need to do is we need to create a marriage ministry because those people got lots of troubles that they're facing. Do you see what I'm saying here this morning? That Paul dignifies and Jesus dignifies the station of singleness and the vocation of singleness without diminishing the vocation and the station of of marriage. He actually lifts them both up, Paul and Jesus both do, and puts them in proper proportion and then ties them all up in the one big family of God and says, you don't get to define yourself. In the family of God, we define ourselves by baptism. We don't define ourselves by singleness or by marriage, but we define ourselves by the God who is the father of us all, Jesus, who is our elder brother and the Holy Spirit who binds us together in the bonds of love. And so we belong to each other. We give ourselves to each other. I'm saying all of this to you as a way of saying, next slide. I think it's coming that the local church needs to be the kind of family that is so rich in its sense of mutual belonging that when people do marry, they are doing it out of a sense of calling and vocation and not to escape a situation of crippling loneliness. How many of you know people that got married because they just couldn't take it anymore? I'm so lonely! Brothers and sisters, in the church, this should not be. In the church, we should have such a profound sense of connection to one another that when the circumstances are right and the opportunity presents itself, we enter gladly and willingly into the vocation of marriage, but not because we're trying to escape some hell of isolation. Are you with me this morning? I think that marriage and singleness in the church, you can put the next slide up, are complementary vocations in the church. Marriage is not exalted above singleness. And I think fairly, if we're reading the teaching of Jesus right, singleness isn't exalted above marriage. But there are differing vocations and stations in life that are roughly coordinate with each other. And they're complementary to one another. And with that, I want to speak to the married people real quick. And I want to speak to the single people real quick just to talk to you about what your vocation in the family of God is. So number one, if you're married in this room, married people, hold up your arms again. I want to see who you are. Good. We've got some married people here. Great. So next slide. This is what I'm saying. Married people, this is what you need to do. This is how you can be the biggest help 
to the body of Christ, the community of faith that you're a part of, open your homes. Open your homes to other people. I don't think you appreciate, unless you're a newlywed, um, uh, I don't think that you appreciate how profound a thing it is that you actually are in that sort of normal rhythm, family rhythm of life, that you cook meals and you have a a living room and you have a dog and all of that stuff. Uh, If you open up that space and make that a space where the single folks among us can be, can live and move and have their being, they'll thank you for it and the church will be richer for it. Mandy and I, like I said, have been going on 17 and a half years of marriage, and we always, our entire marriage, have always made sure that the doors of our home are wide open to other people. And you need to do that. You need to live into that. Your home, you need to leverage that as a place of strength for the church. So live into that and live into that deeply. All during our time in Denver, as, as we pastored tons of single people, and they would always talk to us about, we just so appreciate being able to see the way that you and Mandy relate to one another and how you parent your kids. It's given us, uh, I remember one guy, he's, uh, his name is Rusty, one of my good friends. Rusty was from Texas. And he said, you know, the thing about you and Mandy that like what you did for me is you, um, you like gave me this more realistic and earthy and human picture of marriage. He goes, coming from the church culture in Texas that I came from, all I ever thought about was finding a smoking hot wife. He goes, and you guys just showed me that you can, like, family is like, well, it's just a richer concept than that. And he eventually got married and had a kid, and now there's a second kid on the way. And they've been feeding off of that vision of home that we gave them. Married people, open your homes. It's one of the best things that you can give to the church, to let your home be a place where community can happen, relationship can happen, prayer can happen, mutual support can happen. So that's to the married people. And to the single people, I would say this, last thing. Single people, you need to leverage your strength for the good of the community. Leverage your strength for the good of the community. Don't turn this season. If this season is six months, six years, or 60 years, I don't care how long it is. Do not turn this season into some selfish quest for self-fulfillment. I'm just unencumbered now, so I'm going to Thailand by myself. I mean... (laughs) Do that if you want. But if you're living consistently with the teaching of Jesus, what you do is you go, what I have a richness of is I have a richness of time and capacity to serve and to bless and to strengthen the people around me. So where there are opportunities to serve in my church, I'm going to be there. Where there are other single people that need to be strengthened, I'm going to, be, I'm going to strengthen them. Where there are people in the church to be discipled, I'm going to disciple them. Where there are initiatives and causes in the world that need people to join them or need people to start them, I'm going to do that because I have the luxury of time on my hands. So I'm going to give myself to the great things and exhaust myself, pour out the cup of my singleness so that strength rises in my city and in my church and with even my roommates. That I'm going to give myself to other people as Christ would have me. So married people, your strength is what you have relationally. Your homes, open your homes. And single people, your strength is what you have in terms of capacity. Leverage that for the good of others, and I guarantee you the body of Christ will rise. Can I get an amen? Amen. So Lord, help us. Help us. I pray that nobody in this room would feel a sense that they are on the outside of some experience looking in. But I pray that everybody in this room would understand that they are insiders right now. Because you've made us insiders. 
The scripture says that we're the church of the firstborn. Every one of us have the deepest sense of belonging and dignity laid on us. And so I pray that we would wake up to the resources that are in front of us, wake up to the dignity that's been given to us, and give everything that we can give for the good of others, for the glory of God, and for the healing of the world. Grant that, we ask, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. So I got some questions for you to discuss at your tables, which you'll discuss for 10 or 15 minutes or so, and then Shailene will wrap everything up and dismiss you. What do you find most challenging about this teaching? What do you find most hopeful about this teaching? And then how can you better live into your vocation for the good of God's whole family? Go ahead and discuss.